You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clubo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Good morning, Bobo. How you doing today? Uh, been better. Yeah, what's up? We had a put monkey to sleep the other day. Oh, monkey is down, huh? Yeah, gone but not forgotten. No, never forgotten. No, man, she's more than a dog. She's a good friend. I'm so sorry to hear that. Oh yeah, full family member, 16 years. Oh my gosh. Well, she had more than a better run. I mean, she lived the life of three dogs. Three people. Yeah, that's true. I mean, she's been to the Patterson-Gimlin film site. She's explored every nook and cranny of Bluff Creek. She's had her own encounters with Sasquatches. She's heard them for herself. She's been on planes. She's traveled the country, really. Yeah, she's been to Mayaka. She's been up in North Carolina stills. She's been helicoptering through the gorge. I mean, she's, she's had a good run for sure. Yeah, anybody would be so lucky. Good for her. Well, I'm so sorry that she's gone, but at the same time, you know, um, what did I hear? Somebody said at some point that uh, life eventually makes you so uncomfortable that you'd like to leave your body. So maybe it was her, just her time. Yeah, it was totally her time. Yeah, I mean, she was, it was that sweet spot. The vet said you guys timed it good because we took her off all her meds. So the last 24 hours, she wasn't throwing everything up. And we took a couple of short walks and she saw a few neighbors and neighbor dogs she's friends with. And then we took her in and it was, Sad, sad times. Uh, must be devastating. I'm so sorry, Bobo. I'm so sorry. That's all right. But um, yeah, so the monkey wanted me to sally forth and carry on and keep squatching. So what do we got in the squash world going on today? Oh, we've got a great show for you today. So, so Bobo, um, I don't know about you, but one of my favorite Bigfoot books isn't really even about Sasquatches. You know, I mean, I can go down the list and say, you know, uh, Dr. Meldrum's Sasquatch Legend Meets Science. Um, or uh, Dr. Uh, Grover Krantz's, you know, Bigfoot Sasquatch evidence, or the second, or the, the first incarnation of the first pressing of it, which is uh, Big Footprints. You know, obviously, those are my favorite books, but th- those are about Bigfoot, specifically about Bigfoot. One of my favorite Bigfoot books of all time isn't really even about Sasquatches. It's kind of about a person's perspective on the phenomenon as he starts exploring it for himself. And of course, that book is um, Where Bigfoot Walks, Crossing the Dark Divide by Dr. Bob Pyle, or Robert Michael Pyle, as it says on the cover of the book. But it's you know, Bob to us because he's a good friend. Now, Bob is um, a butterfly scientist. He's speci- he has a PhD in butterflies and moths. So um, his take on the Sasquatch phenomenon um, is different, perhaps, than an anthropologist or a Bigfoot nerd or something like that. And really, Bob's, I guess, his, his his alter ego is that of a poet. So he's this naturalist with a PhD in unrelated fields, you know, like butterflies and moths, that is a poet. And he goes out on an extended backpacking trip to explore the idea of Sasquatch. And it's really one of the best written books there is. It's by far one of my favorite books on the subject. Um, not only because Bob is such a stellar human, but the book itself is so easy to read. Well, I'm sure that most of our audience is going, oh, yeah, I've read that. It was fantastic. But perhaps they don't know that they just made a movie out of it. 
And so today we have the producer, director, the guy who wears a million hats, who is really responsible for that movie, um, Tom Putnam. So Bobo, meet Tom and Tom, meet Bobo. Hey, Tom. Hey, Bobo. I, had, I, I used to have your same nickname, so that's pretty cool. I don't, I've never met another Bobo. I thought you were going to say stud. Stud. <laughs> yeah. That, that, unfortunately, I've never had that nickname. <laughs> What, what, what made you get rid of it? it, it uh, nothing. It just sort of, uh, I moved and it didn't follow me, I guess. Oh, you're lucky. <laughs> How'd you get Bobo? It means great lover in Italian. Is that true? No. They, my name was Jimbo and I, I didn't want to be called Jimbo anymore. So I got a uh, double down on the bow. So it was Jim Bobo and then just Bobo. Amazing. The small, a long evolution, I imagine. Uh, yeah, just a torturous older brother that liked to make me get upset. Don't call me that anymore. Of course, made it stick. Yeah, that's the best way to do it. And make sure you, if you don't want to be called something, tell your brother to not do it. And yeah, it'll stay around forever. T Bone, thanks for having me on the show, guys. Well, th- thanks for coming on. You're, yeah, we're, we're thrilled to have you on. And of course, not only because you've made this movie that Bobo and I have both watched, by the way, we, I, I loved it. Thank you very much for uh, giving us a screener of that. But also any friend of Bob Pyle is a friend of ours. So it's, it's uh, a pleasure to have you on. Bob's the greatest. He and I talked for about an hour yesterday. Lucky. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I optioned this book, his book, uh, I think almost to the day, about 10 years ago. And so I just realized... A little while ago, wow, I've known Bob for 10 years. It's amazing. Every conversation I have with him, I learn something new. So it's always my, my relationship with him is always changing. Yeah, you know, he, he may be a butterfly scientist. And, and again, legit, I, wanna, I don't want to underemphasize his PhD here, but he really is a naturalist in the, in the grand sense of the word and in in truly the Victorian era sense. Before scientists were even a thing, they were naturalists who went out and explored the natural world and wrote about it. And that's really what Bob is, because he, he may have uh, uh, an encyclopedic knowledge of butterflies, but he knows a whole lot about almost anything else out in the woods. He's amazing. I also think he's also got that Dr. Livingston, I presume, gene where you can imagine him 100 years ago just bushwhacking his way through the you know forest in Amazon looking for a pyramid or lost cities or something. He's, he's an amazing guy, right? He combines so many different things into this one-of-a-kind package. Yeah. Well, you know, since so, so you, I think that's a great starting point that, that 10 years ago, you actually uh, um, optioned his book. Uh, which meant like that you get rights to make a movie should that opportunity arise, right? So kind of take us on the story, take us on the ride here. Tell us the story about how this movie came about. I grew up in Oregon and spent, I mean, every weekend since I was old enough to walk, uh, hiking, camping, and fishing. And I did an awful lot of that in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest in Southern Washington, where Bob's book and the movie takes place. And um, growing up, I was really interested in the unexplained. I'm old enough so that I, I grew up pre-internet. So my access to those things was basically like one Ivan T. Sanderson book at like the local library in Portland. And I then uh, read Bob's book about 10 years ago. A friend gave it to me and said, you're going to love this book. Please don't try to make it into a movie because that would be impossible. And they were almost right. I, um, I read the book and it rekindled my curiosity about um bigfoot but also 
it wow it really reminded me of the importance of nature in my life and how much i missed it i live in la now my son's 12 and his favorite things are hiking and camping and fishing and we don't get a chance to do it every weekend here like i did when i grew up and you know you guys read bob's book he has such a unique perspective on bigfoot where i love his take on it that bigfoot is also a way that we can connect with nature and remind ourselves that we're a part of nature and that was the thing that i think for me really made me fall in love with it and decide "Ah, i gotta make this into a movie so optioned the book and wow spent about seven years writing and rewriting and re-rewriting the script Uh, a lot happened in bob's life during that time his wife tia uh died after a very long battle with ovarian cancer that ended up in the film because it was such a just huge shift for bob the uh the film's actually based on seven of his other books too and then um i ran into an old friend of mine his name is joy whites he cast and executive produced napoleon dynamite and like cast blade and worked on edward scissorhands and dances with wolves and I was just said, hey, do you want to read the script? And he read it and fell in love with it and became a big cheerleader for it. And then uh, connected with Aaron and Ryan, who are the producers on the film. And they fell in love with it and just started, you know, pounding the pavement, finding cast and just slowly but surely finding people that the script spoke to and wanted to take a flyer on this little movie and go spend 22 days out in the Gifford Pinchot with us and get into trouble. So uh, when, when were you filming? Like what were the dates or uh, the approximate time frame of, of the actual filming with the boots on the ground in Gifford Pinchot? Yeah, we filmed uh, late May through June of last year. Okay. Now, uh, you said that this book was based on a number of other Bob books as well. What sort of things did you tie in from those? Because honestly, I've only read The Dark Divide, like, you know, where Bigfoot walks. Um, I've only read that book. Um, by Dr. Pyle and a few of his um, poetry books that he's gifted me over the years for going to his uh, poetry readings at various bookstores. He wrote a really amazing book called Sky Time and Gray's River, which is all about his life with Tia, his wife and his, his home. He lives on a pretty amazing kind of rural location in Gray's River, Washington. That book laid a lot of the background and kind of helped me get a little more in Bob's head. Whereas, you know, where Bigfoot walks takes place in 1995, he's already at that point pretty competent outdoorsman and knows what he's doing. But Skytime and Gray's River and then some of his earlier books, you get a sense of like the first time he went out in the woods and the kind of trouble he got into and the challenges he had and that sort of learning process. And that, that was something I really wanted to incorporate. A lot of his poetry made it into the film, not as poetry, but as little moments he captured in his poems that ended up becoming scenes in the film. I was wondering about that because I was like, wait a minute, I thought he'd already been a naturalist. Like, why? This guy's a bumbling fool. <laughs> yeah, I, Bob was fine with that. I mean, the reality of it was to have somebody go out into the wilderness who knew how to do everything correctly wasn't going to be that interesting. And if you reread Bob's book, I mean, he has a number of really scary near-death encounters. And I think also when we cast David Cross, I mean... I wouldn't be surprised if David's never been camping. Uh, I also wanted to kind of retailer the character a little bit for him so that he could bring something of himself to it. Cause he's definitely not a like rugged deep woods outdoorsman type guy. 
God, I hated his character in that in this movie. Like, <laughs> I, I want him to die. Like I'm like, I'm like I love Bob Pyle, but this guy in the movie, I want him to fall off a cliff. Well, you almost did. We we hung David off a cliff. <laughs> That's true. Well, I can see that. So you incorporated another part of his uh, literature repertoire, I guess, like his um, in another one of his books. Uh, where he was actually learning the skills that he would later have. Because I know that when I read, um, last time I read uh, Where Bigfoot Walks, you know, Bob was a competent guy going out backpacking. And when I saw the movie, I was with Bobo, I was like, huh, wonder why they did that. But at least now it makes sense to me that you actually incorporated a, a, a wider stretch of uh, Bob's timeline and incorporated that into the story. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, all the sort of near-death experiences he has in the film, those are all things that did happen in the book. So I think. You know, when you take him and you string them all together, it definitely makes him look, it makes it look a little hairier than it was if you spread it out over months and months. One of the other things I noticed, because uh, there are, of course, differences between any book and any movie, um, was the, the, the timeline in a way of, of Thea dying before Bob did the journey, which wasn't true in the book necessarily. I think that she uh, struggled and uh, eventually succumbed to cancer after the book was written. Is that correct? Correct. She, uh, I want to say she had, she went, through remission, I, I want to say four times, three or four times. She had it for about a decade. And we were in the middle of writing the script and when she died. And it just, Bob and I spent so much time talking about it. I couldn't imagine not putting it in the film because ultimately the movie, it's not about her death in as much as that it's about how she helped Bob become the person he wants to be. And that's definitely, you know, a part of his life and a part of the reason he went on that journey and hiked through the dark divide. So I think her presence in the film and in his life is like pretty accurate for how he views her. I mean, he talks about her every day. And when he talks about her, he talks about her like she's still here. Yeah. And, and uh, her, her passing is definitely uh, um, a, the perfect vehicle to propel him into this uh, unknown voyage that he's about to go on. So it does make a lot of sense. And it is true to Bob's character. I'm not the character that David Cross plays of Bob, but Bob himself. It is true. that What a um, formative force she was in his life. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a chance to talk to her a couple of times um, before she passed away. And I mean, she was, <laughs> she was a powerhouse, right? She, if you guys knew her, she, definitely was somebody i you know i run into more people having made the film who knew tia and have these amazing stories about tia than even who knew bob she had a huge circle of friends so um now bobo and i we did we've done a lot of uh, seasons of finding bigfoot and we've filmed in some very unpleasant situations and um inclement weather etc what sort of challenges did you have filming offset you know because like it's one thing filming in somebody's house but it's an entirely different thing filming out in Gifford Pinchot National Forest. What are, the, what are some of the challenges that you guys ran across? Man, everything. Uh, I grew up in Oregon, so I, I knew sort of what I was getting into. I really wanted the movie to feel authentic. I come from a documentary background, so I wanted the audience to really feel like they were out in these locations, in rugged places, get a sense of the isolation and the danger. You know, so we, we shot the entire film with a very small crew in some very rural, isolated locations that a film crew is probably not supposed to go. Um, from above the tree line up on, uh, we doubled Mount Hood for Mount Adams, but we were up there in a snowstorm to like lava tunnels uh, under the Gifford Pinchot. And uh, the weather was uh, miserable. Um, 
I mean, you know, the Pacific Northwest, it's, it can be sunny at breakfast and pouring down rain by lunch. And we didn't have a whole lot of time to shoot. We shot the whole movie in 22 days, which uh, for a feature film is pretty fast. It's way fast. Yeah. Especially something like this that has just hundreds of locations. And, you know, I told everybody, kind of pulling a page from my documentary work, hey, we got to shoot every day. And if it's raining or something happens, we're going to figure out something else, some other way to shoot what we need to shoot. And we did. I mean, there's scenes in the film where you see it pouring down rain and David Cross in the distance, he's struggling through it. And that's because it was raining that day. Um, In addition to the weather, our uh, production office got hit by a tornado, dropped a tree on our production van and pancaked it right in downtown Portland. It was the only thing that got damaged in the whole city. We had a few crew injuries. It was a a tough, tough shoot. Um, But hopefully it comes across in the film. It definitely, for me, feels like what it feels like to go hiking through there and just be all alone in nature. And then you hear something or think you see something and you just realize what a big place the forest is and how small you are and how little you know about it. I have a question for you. Our crew working on Finding Bigfoot all came in as skeptics, but they had their own experiences while we were filming the show. We'd be out in these areas, Bigfoot areas, like stuff would come around the camp and they'd you know, have interactions that made them think, wow, these things are real. Did your crew have anything like that happen up there in the Dark Divide? Um, not with Bigfoot. We had a mountain lion which is about four times bigger than I thought it would be uh, a few bears. Um, and I think our crew all told is kind of a mix of people coming out of it. Some people, some people believed coming in, believed coming out. Some people didn't believe starting the film believed coming out. And some people still don't believe. Did you have any uh, Bigfoot researchers as consultants for Bigfoot behavior? Like when you did the knocks and the hoops and that stuff, or did Bob do that? That that was Bob for the most part. All the sounds you hear in the film, I obviously listened to a lot of the recordings that you can find online. Um, and all the sounds are mixes of various uh, real-world primate sounds. Bob's so descriptive in his book, too, right? There's an amazing scene where he's camping on the shore of Cultus Lake, and it's the middle of the night, and he's washing his dishes and whistling, and he hears something whistle back. And, I mean, he takes, like, three paragraphs to describe what it sounds like, which for me is amazing. Somebody just like gave me a blueprint of what, what to kind of do. Oh yeah. He, he's definitely an orator supreme. I mean, he, uh, he can make the most mundane thing just sound lyrical and poetic. Um, that's, that's the joy of reading his book. Uh, cause it's basically a guy goes backpacking and thinks a lot about Bigfoot, but at the end of the day, like you're just, you're just enthralled with the entire journey because uh, it's Bob's voice saying it. And anything Bob says, he has such a, uh, a, a fantastic, delicate way of saying it. Just you just can't wait to read the next sentence. Yeah, I, what I love about his writing is that no matter what he's talking about, he somehow gets me to see it through his eyes and understand how he sees the world, which is an amazing thing. I mean, one one thing that isn't in his book that was a part of his life that I wanted to make a point of capturing in the film is that in a lot of ways. You know, Bob has a master's from Yale and all of these amazing credits. He wrote the Audubon Field Guide to North American Butterflies, but he's also kind of a big kid. And in some ways, that's amazing. He has a curiosity about the world that I think a lot of adults don't have anymore. And at the same time, 
there's he and I were talking about that this last night. There's like a little bit of sort of selfishness there where his passions sometimes can kind of take over his life. Well, that's the Bigfooter in him. I mean, most Bigfooters are pretty imbalanced people, like to a dangerous level. <laughs> oh, sounds like uh, sounds like filmmakers. Sounds like my world. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure most worlds are pretty much the same. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Did Bob come on set? Yeah, he did a few times. He, uh, he came on set. Uh, actually, my favorite day of filming was his first time he came to set, and it was the day we were filming a really important scene with uh, David Cross, who plays him, and, and Deborah Messing, who plays his wife, Tia. And it's, uh, it's, it's their last scene together in bed. Uh, oh, that sounds so sexy. Not that kind of scene. But like they're having a very quiet moment together in bed. I thought it was sexy. And I saw Bob uh, through the window outside looking at the monitor. He had a weird expression on his face. And I got pretty nervous because for 10 years, he's been telling me like about all of his friends whose books got made into films and screwed up by the filmmakers and I better not do that. So I went out to check on him after we finished filming and he um, asked him how he was. And he just like gave me this really strange look and just said, um, thanks for letting me see my wife one more time that was totally worth all of the, all the pain in the ass of making a movie in the last 10 years. So yeah, that's touching. That's touching. Yeah. And he became friends with a lot of the people. I mean, everybody, all our cast and crew, a huge portion of them still keep in touch with them. They all just adore him. I mean, he's the, he's like the grandpa you always wanted. He's such a good guy. So, um, the, the filming part of it. Um, so Bob was on set sometimes out, out in the woods with you as well, I guess. Correct. Yes. Uh, Bob's health is not the best. So, um, the really rugged locations, those were typically shot with a pretty small crew. Yeah. Did he drive his light blue little car? It was broken. We were going to use it in the movie and it, and it, and it was completely dead. So it was like months leading up to the film of trying to get the mechanic to fix it and kept finding more and more stuff wrong. And yeah, powder milk, it's a legendary car, right? Um, it is like, what is it? A night? What, what year is that vehicle? I want to say it's a 79, 79. I was going to say 82 or 83. Isn't it like a powder blue, like Honda civic or something like that? Like one of the early hatchbacks. Yeah. If it, I think it was powder blue at one time and now it's just sort of a, whatever color powder blue gets to be after like 40 years. It's, <laughs> it's actually still not fixed. It's still at the mechanics. I was just checking in on it. <laughs> well, you try, you did your best with it. Thank you. What, what car did you substitute for it? We ended up with uh, an 82 Volkswagen Rabbit that, this is no joke, on our very last day of filming, the next to the last shot, the transmission fell out. <laughs> so it just, just squeaked almost to the finish line. One of the things that surprised me the most in Bob's book was talking about um, logging crews and how often they have encounters and how, I don't know if it's the case now, but back in the 90s, you know, the, the crews had to, had to sign... Uh, NDAs saying that they wouldn't report Bigfoot sightings because they had so many that they were worried that the, um, that the logging operations would get shut down. That and lo and behold, the spotting owl did it for them. Yeah, exactly. I think they're in cahoots, the spotted owl and Bigfoot. In cahoots. <laughs> oh, no pun intended. That was something that was really amazing. You know, we have a scene in the film where he shows up at a logging camp and a lot of their equipment's wrecked and they're trying to figure out who did it. Um, 
I, you know, as a former logger, I, I was so upset at that scene. I'm like, that is not like a real logging scene at all. <laughs> that was a working logging site, man. What do we do wrong? Really? It was? hundred percent. Yeah. Just the way the guys were walking around. Oh, I didn't know they were, I, I didn't realize that they were looking at destroyed. They thought Bigfoot destroyed it. I thought it was like Earth first and destroyed it or something. Well, they, they're they're trying that. That's what they think. But I think we're supposed to. We hint at it earlier. We're supposed to wonder if it was Bigfoot or not. I've seen those Earth first guys. I don't think they could turn over a whole tractor. <laughs> <laughs> Where were you a logger? Um, Northern California. Oh, cool. That's a tough job, man. Yeah, it was. I had the two toughest jobs you could have up here: as commercial fisherman and logger. And, Logging, at least, you, you know, you never worked more than like 14 or 15 hours unless you're on a fire. But fishing, you, you know, you just go day after day, 24 hours, 22 hours, 20 hours a day, you know. So it just really wears you out. Like television. It's more glamorous than television, though. I did a movie up in Alaska and spent a lot of time with those guys like out at uh, Kodiak and Dutch Harbor. That, to me, is the scariest job in the world, being a commercial fisherman. Oh, it has to be just because, you know, you, one misstep or somebody turns around at the wrong time, you're overboard and no one knows what happened to you and there's no chance of being found. Yeah. I'm going to pass on that. So you definitely get your butt puckered up pretty good at times on the boat. Well, Bobo, you took a crabbing job to see a Bigfoot. How did that work for you? Well, it was more, um, it was a seasonal aspect of it that I could work in the winter and then be free in the summer. I do a lot of John Doing where you just did fill-in trips. Where like some guy got broke his arm, or there's because Eureka's a pretty big port, or it was back then for fishing. So boats would pull in, guys would get drunk, get arrested, and their skipper would be looking for a guy to fill in until the guy got out of jail. So I'd hop on those in the summer, you know, go shrimp fishing or tuna or salmon for a little while. But then, but the bread and butter was always crab in the winter. What did you know about Bigfoot since you grew up in Oregon? I mean, I grew up in the seventies and eighties, so it was. It was the era of like in search of. So you sort of got informed by that. But then, you know, I spent a lot of time out in rugged locations, bushwhacking to find like the perfect trout stream to go fishing. And for me, it was just about so many times, you know, hearing something or thinking you glimpsed something and not knowing what it was or that feeling that just you get all of a sudden where you feel like something's there with you or watching you i was a kid so that immediately was me like dropping my fishing pole and like running back to find my dad wherever he was and then having to go get my fishing pole back but i think when i you know even growing up outside of portland you would kind of pretty regularly somebody would come back from fishing or hunting or camping and have a story that they couldn't explain um so it seemed i mean for me it was just sort of a part of life growing up um, was that was a thing that happened to people sometimes. Yeah, it is, oddly enough. That's exactly right. It's a thing that happens to some people sometimes. Do you, do you remember any sounds, looking back now, that sounds like you think, man, that could have been a Bigfoot. Now you know more about Bigfoot than heard audio. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think there were times you would hear something and just assumed it was some animal that, you know, echoed and reverberated. And by the time it got to you, it sounded warbled and deeper and strange and now you know in hindsight having spent a lot of time with bob and sort of understanding the biology of it more it definitely makes me makes me wonder if i 
if I heard something different than what I thought it was. You know, you, you said something there that I think is important to use the word wonder. Um, and, and, you know, you're doing it as a verb, but wonder is also kind of a noun, isn't it? Like there, there's a certain wonder to the world. And I think that's one of the things that uh, Bob brings out in his writings and, in, in your, and also in our personal relationships, that, that sense of wonder about some things. Like, yeah, there is a possibility. And in fact, um, one of my favorite quotes is ridiculous because I can't remember, even remember the wording of it. So it's not really a quote. But one of my favorite paraphrases is of Bob, and he more or less says, if there ever comes a time where we cannot imagine giants living in the woods, then we've lost something profound. 100%. That was something that I didn't expect going into his book. I mean, I don't know how anyone can read his book and not walk away from it with just an, at least an open mind. Um, he has such a cool... You know, I've heard people ask him that question 50 times now, 100 times, you know, do you believe in Bigfoot? And he talks about, hey, I'm a scientist. There's a theory that people have put forward about their, about why Bigfoot would exist, and it hasn't been disproven. So as a scientist, I have to keep an open mind until it's disproven. It could very well exist. And I mean, I have a hard time understanding how so many different people could see so many things and not know that something's going on. Right. I feel like our, our interaction with nature is so much about us thinking that we're smarter than nature. And once you put that aside, I think it opens you up to a whole range of possibilities. I mean, I don't know about you guys, the last seven months have had a lot of unpleasant surprises. I like the kind of surprise about a Bigfoot encounter or having your mind open to something like that. I would definitely wouldn't want to live in a world where Bigfoot was an impossibility. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. One of the things that is, the, you know, a theme in the film, we kind of touched on it a few minutes ago, was the idea that whether or not you believe in Bigfoot, there's something very primal in that it connects us with nature and re- and can represent the spiritual importance of nature in our lives. Is that something that you guys have experienced with Bigfoot? Has it helped you kind of gain a better understanding of your connection with nature and the role of nature in your lives? Absolutely, I would say. I mean, for uh, you know, because I grew up in Long Beach, California you know, down where you are now. And, um, it's a sea of pavement, you know, and even the dirt isn't real, you know, it, it's, it's a weird place down there. And, um, this, it's just good to get some dirt on your, in between your toes, you know, this is good for the soul and good for your mentally. For me, Bigfooting ended up being some sort of almost like therapy in a way. Um, some may argue I didn't have enough of it, but like, uh, it, cause getting out into the woods and being alone for a week or two does, does anybody good, I think. And um, to break away and then explore a mystery, doing what you'd like to do anyway, you know, walking roads and staying up late at night and, you know, screaming into the night, <laughs> those sort of things. It's, it's good for you. It's just good for you it's spiritually and emotionally and mentally and physically, every single way I can imagine. It's good for you to do that sort of stuff, which is why uh, I, I guess all the, after all these years, I'm so enthusiastic about Bigfoot even still, because it's good for me still. And um, I want to encourage everybody to go out to the woods because even though Bigfoot probably isn't going to show up and shake your hand, you'll, you just might have a good weekend out in nature. 
And that is good for us. I think that's what we all, as a culture, as a society, I think we need a lot more of that, honestly. Well, and Bigfoot's just one of many things I think that we have yet to discover about the natural world. There's a scene in the movie that was one of my favorite scenes in Bob's book about um, ghost moths, which are very rare. And they're these uh, bioluminescent, they think, uh, moths that he had a moment where they kind of surrounded him and he encountered them. I mean, to me, that's in some ways almost as amazing as having a Bigfoot sighting. Yeah, you know, that's one of Bob's themes when I, when I go to hear him speak. Because as I mentioned, I, I, I go to Bob's lectures whenever he's speaking, you know, within spitting distance. And um, one of the times I heard him a few years ago, um, he's speaking at a brewery in um, Vancouver. And what was it, the Lewitt Brewery, I think it was? I'm not sure. But um, he's, his spiel was, you know, about, I'll just say an hour presentation. 35 or 40 minutes of it was about butterflies. And then he transitioned and say, now remember, these are basically maggots that spin a web around themselves, go to sleep for a month, and then they wake up with these iridescent huge wings and their nectar-eating amazing little things, you know? And he says, this is a miracle. What, you're, what, what I'm talking about now is a miracle that this happens. And you're saying that a biological, it's biologically impossible for a bipedal ape to exist here. This is a miracle. And you say, this is impossible. Seriously? And that was like the theme of his talk. And it was just so eye-opening and wonderful to listen to. I love watching him talk to groups of people because they enter the room with one perspective on the world. And I feel like they leave it with a different perspective, a healthier perspective. How did David Cross get chosen for this? I mean, because I think that guy has been like the ultimate city guy, like not outdoorsy. How did he come into this project? That's kind of why I liked him. I mean, the film doesn't have a ton of dialogue. There's a 34 minute stretch where there's no dialogue in it. And I knew I wanted somebody who didn't feel like an outdoors person who felt like if they were in a tough situation, there was going to be some real peril there. I wanted somebody who... I felt like I could relate to who I wanted to keep looking at and who knew how to get the comedy out of those moments and get the drama out of those moments in the movie. I mean, you guys saw the movie. It has some pretty heavy duty moments in it. And, um, it was a pretty small list and, you know, David was right up there at the top of it. And, uh, Jory, our casting director and producer got him the script and he responded really quickly. And, he was going to be out in LA. So we met at a bar for a beer and we we're going to talk for an hour. It ended up being three hours and way too much beer. And um, I loved his take on it. And I've been working on this film for years and years. And, you know, it's based on a true story. So I always just saw Bob Pyle as I was writing it. And after I met with David, that was the first time I started to see someone else as the character. And that got really exciting for me and david you know he acts in it but he's also a producer on it he worked with me really extensively over about a six seven month period to rewrite the script and um it was really really collaborative now that we made the movie creatively and just for like somebody who was going to go for it the way he did i can't imagine making it with anybody else i mean normally with actors you're trying to talk them into doing things this was the opposite david was always like arguing with the assistant director and the stunt guys saying like, no, 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 put me in the water, hang me off the cliff. Let's, let's just put the owl on my head. So I mean, <laughs> that's a total, total gift as a director to not only have somebody who 
has the skills to do it, but has the like willingness to just go for it. And I mean, you know, you've seen David and Mr. Show or Arrested Development. He's not a dude that holds back. Like he, he, he throws himself into whatever he's doing. And that was, I think, kind of ended up being our secret weapon in the film. So David Cross is a skeptic of Bigfoot. Did he get a little more knowledgeable and a little more open to it during the course of filming and talking to people? He did not at all. David's one of the most skeptical people I've come across. Like he's a very pragmatic guy. Um, I keep asking him and he just keeps saying, nope. <laughs> you guys gotta, you guys gotta get him on your show. Maybe you can turn him around. I feel like if anybody can get him to have an open mind, it's you guys. We'll straighten his ass out. Just give me his number. All right. Well, let's get him on the show. You, you can do it in front of an audience. I'd love to have him on the show. It'd be great to talk to him. And, and really, uh, I don't know, I can't speak for Bobo here, but um, I welcome skepticism. It is good to be skeptical because like I said, there's so much malarkey out there. It's just nonsense being um, touted about his Bigfoot stuff. But I also find that the stronger the skeptic, the, the less informed they are about the subject. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's just a matter of like showing them a few things and talking to them about um, the, the consistency of the evidence over the last few hundred years. Yeah, I, I can't wait to see his uh, stand-up act that has some stories about this movie. Exactly. I think, um, yeah, maybe next one. I hope they're good stories. And, and, and I really enjoyed the film, and I want to congratulate you on getting it made, and um, I hope it's successful for you. I hope it's successful for Bob as well, and he gets a lot of good feedback, you know, because it's his story. It's his life in a way, you know? I um, know. Thank God he's happy with it. I was so worried. Oh, I can only imagine. Like, because imagine if he goes, "Oh God, this is the worst piece of garbage I've ever seen in my life," and it's about me. Thanks, Tom. Like, exactly. You never sleep again, man. Yeah. Luckily, he uh, he really likes it, so <laughs> I can I can I can sleep well. At least if I lose sleep, it's not because of that. Yeah, and you know, for whatever it's worth, he's actually told me um, on on you know privately that he really enjoyed the film as well. He's not just blowing smoke, so he really does like it. So. Oh, that's good to know. Does Bob blow smoke? I feel like he's a pretty straightforward guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess now that you mentioned it, he's not the smoke blower. But I want to let you know that he did tell me privately that he really enjoyed the film as well. And my girlfriend liked it. That's good. And she's not into Bigfoot stuff too much. Good. It was all that, da- all that David Cross nudity. <laughs> well, on that note, um, Tom, how do people see this movie but not see every square inch of David Cross? No, that's, don't worry. That's not in, that's not in the movie. He's, oh, he's in his well, underwear. <laughs> People are going to want to see this. People who have read Bob's book or people who might be interested in Bob's book, they're going to want to see this movie. How do they do that? The film is out on DVD and on most of the major video on demand platforms like Amazon, Vudu, Apple TV, iTunes. You can go to darkdividefilm.com and there's a big fat button that'll show you everywhere you can see it. All right. So Dark Divide, you can Google search it and tell you everywhere you need to go. Amazon and all that other stuff. Dark Divide, Dark Divide, Dark Divide. Uh, DarkDivideFilm.com. Yeah. Well, you know, I looked up Dark Divide because I can remember uh, somebody's name. So I I looked it up that and and it came up right away. Oh, good. Interesting. Yeah. Dark Divide. You look up the film Dark Divide. It's definitely worth a watch. And I would encourage all of our listeners to go ahead and see the film. And of course, read the book. Go straight to the source and read the book. You will not regret it. Bob Pyle is a fantastic author. And a, just a, a, a good guy who can piece words together like nobody's business. For sure. Thanks so much for having me on the show. This was amazing. 
Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. This is a lot of fun and um, really appreciate uh, just a little bit of insight into the film and also just talking about how much we all love Bob. That's that does it for me. We could have talked about Bob for another hour. I could do that all day. (laughs) All right. right. Thanks so much, Tom. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. Okay. Take care. Bye. So there you go, Bobes. That was a good one, huh? That was quite an accomplishment to shoot that whole movie in 22 days is amazing. Oh, and to think that it's been in the works for 10 years. Yeah, I remember Bob telling me like a long time ago, like, I remember when it got optioned, he's like, yeah, we got it optioned. And I was like, oh, cool. And that was, yeah, that was at some conference or something like long way back. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad it finally made screen because it is such a good story. And the fact that that they got these big stars to be in it and stuff, that must feel so good. I'm looking forward to talking to Bob now about it. Yeah, totally. I'm glad we talked to Tom first before we talked to Bob. Well, we'll try to get Bob on the next couple of weeks and we'll see what we can do because really Bob's overdue for being on the show anyway. He's such a neat guy and neat, just a wonderful man to talk to. And I know, I know we keep gushing about him, but I just love the guy. He's so great. Maybe I should do a little counterbalance to start badmouthing him. <laughs> you know, everybody who knows Bob wouldn't believe it. <laughs> That's true. He's, he's a really cool guy. Smart as hell. All right, Bobs, take us home, man. Okay, folks. Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Bigfoot Beyond with Cliff and Bubba. We appreciate it. Hit the like, share buttons, spread the word. And until next week, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 